It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Madison Allworth. I'm Juan Williams. I'm Liz Clayman, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, December 7th, 2023. I'm Lisa Brady. The former House Speaker is leaving Washington, raising more questions about where American politics is heading. You may not have a hard time recruiting people to run, but you're going to have a hard time recruiting people that you actually want to represent you to run. We speak with former Congressman Trey Gowdy. I'm Dave Anthony. It's been two months since the Hamas terror attack triggered the war in Gaza. If it wasn't for Hamas's atrocities, um, all of the Israelis and Palestinians who were killed, who suffered uh, for the past two months, would have still been safe and alive today. But this is Hamas's doing. And I'm Tim Gray. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. It's less than two months since this October surprise in the U.S. House. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. California Congressman Kevin McCarthy was ousted as Speaker in a vote joined by Democrats but led by eight of McCarthy's fellow Republicans who had complained about his handling of spending issues, including his work with Democrats to avoid a government shutdown. Yesterday, McCarthy announced he will not finish serving his ninth term. Instead, he's leaving this month. While I'll be departing the House at the end of this year, I will never, ever give up fighting for this country that I love so much. In a video post in a Wall Street Journal op-ed, McCarthy argues a record of accomplishment, including deficit reduction, and he says the Republican Party is expanding. We won a House majority twice. We elected more Republican women, veterans and minorities to Congress than ever before. He says he'll continue recruiting the best and brightest to run for office and that he goes knowing he left it all on the field with a smile on his face. I talked to Kevin on a regular basis, talked to him this morning, actually. Trey Gowdy is a former South Carolina congressman, now host of the Trey Gowdy podcast and Sunday Night in America on Fox News Channel. Not at all surprised. It is really, really hard. Uh, to go from being the leader of any entity, organization, to being still within the organization and not being the leader. And whether that's the U.S. attorney being, you know, replaced as the U.S. attorney, but yet deciding to stay on as a federal prosecutor, it's almost unheard of. So you're the Speaker of the House, uh, third in line of the presidency. You make lots and lots of decisions. And then you wake up on what? I guess October the 4th. Wake up maybe on the morning of the 5th and you're no longer the speaker. Not at all surprised. Kevin's been in Washington for a long, long time. And and when I say Washington, I don't mean he lives in Maryland or Northern Virginia and just kind of walks to work. He commutes across the country at the expense of his wife, Judy, uh, his two children, his mother, Bert. So not at all surprised. There's a difference, though, between, you know, maybe leaving at the end of your term and resigning this month. I mean, why not serve out the remainder of his term, especially after such, you know, a long time serving as a congressman? No doubt. No doubt. I, I finished out my term. I have friends that friends that did not. You know, Jason Chaffetz left before the end of his term. Um, 
I chose to finish mine out. I think it's a little different when you're the when you're the speaker of the house or the former speaker. You can wittingly or unwittingly uh, be seen as a distraction. It, it, everything that Speaker Mike Johnson does will be uh, run either on the record or off the record. Quite frankly, by Kevin, um, he for whatever reason, and I, I swear to you, I'm, I'm a pretty good student of human nature. So it's not like I'm naive about what I'm about to say. How you can have personal animus towards Kevin McCarthy, I find baffling. But this small group that has just this vitriolic personal animus towards him, it wouldn't be a fun work environment. I'm sure that Kevin labored over it because it makes the majority all the more narrow. Bill Johnson's leaving you don't know who's going to get sick, who's not going to be able to come to work. I mean, it wasn't like they were thriving when they had a five or six person majority. I mean, that was a train wreck. And now they're down to two or three. I'm sure he thought about it, but but he concluded that his district would be better served by someone else. You know, I guess winning in what March, whenever the whenever the primary is to fill out his seat. With a shrinking majority, this could force Republicans to work more with Democrats to get anything passed. Is that good or bad for the Republican Party? Uh, it won't happen. So they're not going to look. They they got rid of Kevin. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think I remember what the you know the the given reasons were. He worked with Democrats to keep government open. I and mean, that's why they got rid of him, right? That's the bottom line, Johnson, really. Yeah, and then Mike Johnson, whom I like very much, by the way, uh, as a person, Mike Johnson worked with Democrats to avoid a government shutdown. The result was completely different. The vote was the same. So whether it's border, whether it's FISA, they can't even get along with one another. So the notion that they're going to start working with Democrats to do what's best for the country, uh, no, that is not going to happen. Doesn't this then fuel the Democrats' argument that Republicans can't govern. Well, you don't even have to rely on Democrats to make that argument. Uh, Texas Congressman Chip Roy went on the floor of the House and said, what have we done? Give me a single solitary accomplishment. I mean, that's a Democrat campaign ad given to you by a Republican congressman. You had eight Republican members of Congress that linked arms with the Democrats to get rid of their own Republican speaker. So I don't, I mean, some parties just aren't built for the majority. And for whatever reason, the current Republican conference just thinks it's going to thrive in the minority. Because if they continue with what they've been doing, that is exactly where they're headed. What does this say then about the frustrations maybe of being speaker and more broadly of trying to get anything accomplished in Washington these days? Right now, it is so dysfunctional. There is so much acrimony. You're going to have a really hard time. You may not have a hard time recruiting people to run, but you're going to have a hard time recruiting people that you actually want to represent you to run. And then when you get there and you're given last fall, yes, the numbers were a little bit underwhelming. They expected a red wave. They got like a red trickle, a red Kool-Aid mustache. So they got that, but it's still a gift to govern. You got a majority. They never set the right expectations. The expectations are we're going to stop bad things from happening. 
We can't control the Senate. We can't control the White House, but we are going to stop bad things from happening. But that's not what they say. They say they're going to do this and they're going to do that, all of which requires the Senate, all of which requires the president to sign it. So they set the wrong expectations, which gets the base mad, which then empowers eight people to go get rid of someone. And two months later, nothing has changed. You just have a new speaker and you have people that fundraise and became Instagram and social media stars. So that's what Congress has become. It's become a collection of Kardashians. Are we headed for more and more early retirements? Look, I'm old. There's a a young breed there. Most of my friends have already gone. The ones that I talk to on a regular basis, I cannot overstate how miserable it is. When you cannot even get along or trust people that allegedly wear the same jersey you do, then life is too short. It's already, you're one of 435. So you're not even like a senator. Senators actually have a little bit of juice. A single member of the House has no, no juice at all. You have to work with your colleagues. And when you are constantly being undercut, uh, leaked on, uh, and then with this you know, coup d'etat uh, in October, which I cannot stress to you the damage that did within the conference, to have eight people do what they did. And then it wasn't just Kevin. What happened to Jimmy Jordan and what happened to Tom Emmer and what happened to Stevie Scalise after that was a direct, natural, probable consequence of what the eight did to Kevin. Congressman Steve Scalise, Tom Emmer, and Jim Jordan were all candidates for House Speaker who became casualties of a messy process to replace McCarthy with days of closed-door meetings and infighting to settle on someone enough Republicans could support to go to a full House vote, eventually leading to House Speaker Mike Johnson three weeks after McCarthy was ousted. So I'm sure Kevin will get a lot of questions about why he's leaving and why he's leaving before his term is up. I just I hope people will go back and ask the eight, what did you get for it? You made a mockery of having a narrow majority. What have you gotten for it? McCarthy actually says he'll he'll keep fighting. He's leaving the House, but we'll keep fighting, um, but that he'll serve in, in new ways. What could that mean for him? Kevin will, you know, look, I confess up front. Uh, bias. He is one of the more affable, personable, humble. You know, the trappings of office never got to Kevin. Uh, He enjoyed them because he actually, like, loved sharing them with other people. So Kevin has the one skill that you have to have to be successful in life. He understands people. He relates to people. He's likable. He's going to be fabulously successful. I would also imagine, although Kevin is not one for revenge, but if you accept that what those eight did didn't just hurt him, hurt the party and the conference and therefore the country, it would not surprise me if um, they may win. They may win re-election. They may win overwhelmingly, but it would not surprise me if life were made a little bit more difficult 
because of what they decided to do when they linked arms with Ilhan Omar and AOC. Given the divisions in the party and in the country, are you seeing or hearing anything that gives you any hope about where the country is headed? Sure, it's better than North Korea. I mean, it, it, it's, look, I'd rather have our problems than anybody else's problems in the world. It's the greatest place, and we won the lottery when we were born here, or, or came here, or live here, or work here. But we cannot gloss over the current political environment, which is awful. And it is causing good people to not want to run for office. And it is attracting, uh, I would argue, uh, the personalities that are not in the best interest long-term of our country to that line of work. So we got we to gotta figure out what is broken about our political environment and then fix that. But no, I, I have more, I mean, hope. A, lo- a lack of hope is living in a country where you don't get to say what I just said. You don't get to criticize your leaders. You don't get to vote. You don't get to participate. You don't get to run for office. So there are a lot of reasons for hope, but we cannot be naive. We have a lot of challenges with our politics. There's a reason that people think our country is headed in the wrong direction, and it's not their neighbors. It's not their coworkers. It's their leaders. Their leaders react. Their leaders reflect. They reflect the worst elements of our political culture. And until that changes, then I will probably remain my skeptical self as opposed to the hopeful self my wife wants me to become. Former South Carolina Congressman Trey Gowdy, host of the Trey Gowdy podcast and Sunday Night in America. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Dana Perino. This week on Perino on Politics, I'm joined by Fox News Radio political analyst Josh Kroshar as we dig into the impact of the Israel-Hamas war on the 2024 presidential election cycle and so much more. Available now on foxnewspodcast.com. This is Tim Gray with your Fox News commentary coming up. Two months ago today, Hamas went on the attack, terrorizing Israel. Slaughtering families in their homes massacring hundreds of young people at an outdoor festival, kidnapping scores of women, children, and elderly, even Holocaust survivors. Hamas terrorists bound, burned, and executed children. They are savages. About 1,200 Israelis were murdered that day, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared war, vowing to destroy Hamas. We will exact a price that will be remembered by them and Israel's other enemies for decades to come. But two months later, the war rages across Gaza still, with a lot of focus now on civilian casualties and a humanitarian crisis. There have been pro-Palestinian protests across the U.S., especially on college campuses. People angry at Israel. And that is upsetting Jews here and in Israel who feel threatened, fearing anti-Semitism. With no sign of an end with the horrors of October 7th, 
still all too fresh in their minds. Israel is not the same. Tal Heinrich is a spokesperson for Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. No one is the same. Everyone knows someone in the country who was killed, who was injured, who's fighting in the front lines. Everyone is mobilized one way or another as part of the national effort. And um, at the same time, two months, it's again, there's the operation going on in Gaza right now. We have achieved a lot on the ground in terms of eliminating Hamas commanders and terror infrastructure, but we're not there yet. Yeah. We haven't completed the mission. Well, you, you may be a long ways. The Washington Post had a thing where you may have killed 5,000 Hamas fighters, but they might have 25,000 more. And they have all their tunnels still. And it's going to take months more, maybe? Again, we don't know. We we have set goals for this operation to eliminate the Hamas terrorist regime in Gaza, to make sure that Gaza, this territory, will never pose a terror threat to us again. We cannot live next to this terror enclave. We have done so for 16 years. And just in the past eight weeks, we had over 12,000 rockets raining on our communities on top of the October 7th massacre, which led to the butchering and, and, and raping, beheading and whatnot of 1,200 Israelis. And we also said that we want to bring back all hostages home. Now, these two goals go hand in hand because mm-hmm. Hamas only responds to pressure. Yeah. There are still 138, is that correct? Hostages, you believe? Yes. But you got about 100 out, right, in that week-long ceasefire. What have you learned from those who were set free? First, we want to make sure that we can assure these people that they're safe now, mm-hmm. the children that came back. And as I said, right now, how can we tell them, well, Hamas will never kidnap you again. They will never fire at your communities again. Uh, we're not there yet. Some, uh, as we know from um, hostages who were released, are, are no longer alive. Uh, the IDF has informed six families mm. after we heard testimonies of, of some people who were there um, and informed the families. So, uh, so Were that they is, mistreated? Were they malnourished? Were, physical torture, mental torture? Um, all of the above. Um, we're talking about children who are being held in, in, in dungeons uh, with n- no sunlight, no food, uh, nobody to hug them. Uh, some of them, their parents, their siblings were murdered. We have hostages who came back uh, as, as part of the outline that was agreed upon and discovered that their loved ones are dead mm-hmm. or were kidnapped. Um, and again, uh, some of the, the families of, of the children uh, say that uh, they talk to media, they talk to us. So we know from testimonies that, for example, Hamas used to beat up children. They made them watch some of the atrocities in, in a video. When when somebody cried, the beat, they beat them up. Uh, women described that they had to sleep on plastic chairs. Um, not, not sleep, but whatever right, you can. Right, right. Uh, they separated family members. Uh Inhumane, simply inhumane. Now, as far as the day, October 7, you referenced atrocities. There have been a lot of allegations that women were raped in this Hamas attack. And there have been people angry that women's groups have not done more condemning this. You held a session at the UN earlier this week. Are you making progress in getting people to at least acknowledge 
Well, thanks to the session that the Israeli UN mission hosted uh, on Monday, I think we are getting some awareness. But the fact that we had to hold this event for these atrocities to be acknowledged, that's really, it's baffling. And um, in my opening statement there, I said that these women, some of them were murdered two times. First time when Hamas terrorists raped them. Second time when they put a bullet in them. And now we had, we felt as if they were being murdered for the third time by silence and neglect. So that's why we held this event that it was so powerful. And I can tell you that I... I had two packs of Kleenex tissues with me and I ran out of them because people asked me to pass them around. It was unbearable to listen to some of the first responders describing how they handled the corpses, what they looked like, um, you know, broken pelvises, broken bones, how their um, sensitive parts were mutilated, uh, cut off breasts, how they they played with... It's even hard hard to listen to. No, it's hard to listen. It's... And... The fact that, you know, the same crowd that chanted, believe all women and, you know, where are they now? That's why we have this hashtag going viral now. Me too, unless you're a Jew. So I see it. There are different tiers of hypocrisy at play here. You have the deniers who are, well, where's the evidence? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, these women are dead and we're showing you the evidence I mean, you have videos from October 7, but people have claimed some of those are fake. And we showed them on record um, describing exactly what they saw was happening to women. Now, we also have Hamas terrorists um, who were arrested in Israel. And we, we have excerpts from their interrogations telling the Israeli security agents, well, that that was intentional. It, w- it w- wasn't a bug. It was a feature of their plan for October 7th. Well, let's talk about that plan. New York Times had a story that said that Israeli intelligence had learned of a Hamas plan even as far back as a year ago, detailing some of the things that ended up happening on October 7th. Why was that not given more credibility? So, Dave, we are, as you know, a democratic country. We have conducted thorough inquiries in the past, and October 7th was a failure, a massive failure on our end. And it will be investigated. As we go, we are investigating things because we need to draw lessons Mm -hmm. um, as we operate in Gaza right now. Uh, This can never happen again. But right now, um, we are really focused on on the war effort uh, because we must eliminate this terrorist role. Now, in Gaza, nearly 2 million Palestinians have been displaced And some who fled the fighting in the north are now evacuating as the war intensifies in the south, especially around Han Yunus. Now, Israel's military has a map with safe zones for civilians, but James Elder with UNICEF scoffs. These are tiny patches of barren land or they're street corners, they're sidewalks. There is no water, no facilities, no shelter. And the health ministry in Hamas-controlled Gaza says more than 16,000 Palestinians have been killed in the two-month war, about a third of them children. All of that is Hamas's doing. If it wasn't for Hamas's atrocities, um, all of the Israelis and Palestinians who were killed, who suffered uh, for the past two months, would have still been safe and alive today. But this is Hamas's doing. It's a terrible situation that they dragged us into, Israelis and Palestinian civilians alike. But Israel is doing its utmost efforts to 
safeguard the civilian population of, of Gaza. We announced ahead of time, we've been urging the civilians in every possible way to evacuate from certain areas, including in the north, by the way, where we're still operating. Mm-hmm. Just right now, over the past 24 hours, well, we eliminated, I think, uh, another 250 Hamas targets, but also in the north, we found a huge cache, a massive one of weapons with hundreds of missiles, rocket launchers, RPGs and whatnot, close to a clinic and close to a school, because this is how they operate. They know that Israel does not want to target, to target, You know, we, we don't want to see civilians caught in the crossfire whatsoever. Right. If you listen to us, it can save your life if you're in Gaza right now. Hamas wants them to stay put. That's the problem. They should listen to what we say. It's really important. We don't want But to do see civilians you? in the, in I the mean, crossfire. Because they're, they're probably hearing what Hamas is saying about you. And they see that their home is gone. And they see there's not much food and water. They're going to hate you. You know, maybe they don't have love for Israel, mm-hmm. but I guarantee that once Hamas is eliminated, you will start hearing more and more voices. We're already hearing these voices coming out strongly against Hamas and what they did and how they dragged the region into the situation right now. Um, and I hope that once they're gone, these terrorists, we will start to work with more pragmatic voices uh, on the Palestinian side that want to move this region forward, not right. not take us back. Yeah, how, how, what is the future if you are able to do what you want get the hostages out and get rid of the hamas terror organization then what how do you live side by side i know the u.s still wants a palestinian state gaza must be demilitarized for a certain period of time israel will have to maintain some security responsibility there because will you control gaza or we don't want to occupy gaza but it could be something similar to what you see in, in the west bank with some overriding security presence because Once the terrorists are gone, we want we don't want to see resurgence of terrorism. It's it's not something that my nation, the Israeli people will tolerate mm-hmm. never again. And then the third step, which is a, a long term goal, and it's a very difficult one, because, as you know, Hamas, it's also an ideology that you have to root out. So the Palestinian society and not only in Gaza, also in the West Bank has to be de-radicalized. Just like, you know, after the Second World War, you, you didn't see the, the German society going back to Nazism. You also are still getting attacked on the north, right, from Hezbollah and Lebanon. You have other concerns with Iran-backed militants. Can you fight on two fronts? Based on our history, the answer is yes. But we certainly hope that Hezbollah does not provide us with a cases belly scale attack that will drag the region into a full-fledged war in the north. Um, so we are, we have back and forth with them, that's true. Um, and we are deterring them. And we will act very, very, very decisively if they drag us into a war. Tal Heinrich, spokesperson for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dave. Meet the American who launched Cabbage Patch Kids. During the Christmas shopping season of 1983, those pudgy baby dolls ignited a never-before-seen frenzy among America's youth. The mastermind behind that doll is Xavier Roberts, who was born October 31st, 1955, to Harold Happy 
and Eula Roberts in Cleveland, Georgia, a small rural community located in Appalachia. At 21 years old, Robert discovered the old German technique of fabric sculpture dating back to the 1800s and combined it with his knowledge of quilting passed down for generations in the Appalachian Mountains. The first dolls hit the shelves in 1978 and were dubbed Little People. That same year, he opened Babyland General Hospital in his hometown where kids could visit and adopt a doll. Babyland is a major tourist attraction, bringing in 250,000 people each year. In 1982, the Little People dolls were rebranded as Cabbage Patch Kids due to Fisher Price owning the rights. In November of 1983, the dolls appeared at the International Toy Fair in New York City and The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and sparked a shopping frenzy the day after Thanksgiving, not yet known as Black Friday. Dubbed the Cabbage Patch Kids Riots, 5,000 people stormed a department store in Charleston, West Virginia, where one man armed himself with a bat after the display was destroyed by eager shoppers. In 2023, 40 years after the Cabbage Patch boom, the dolls were inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame. The now 68-year-old Xavier Roberts remains a quiet force behind the brand and still pulls the strings behind the curtain, according to several sources. You can go to the lifestyle section at foxnews.com to find more of these incredible stories. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tim Gray. What's on your mind? Who is Joseph Leon George? He is one of the first heroes of Pearl Harbor. On December 7th, 1941, Joe George was a petty officer, first class, on board the repair ship USS Vessel, moored alongside the battleship USS Arizona on Battleship Row at Pearl Harbor. The Vestal was set to begin repairs on the Arizona at 8.06 a.m. on the day of infamy after a Japanese bomb ignited the USS Arizona's Ford ammunition magazine, almost immediately killing 1,177 sailors and Marines. The USS Vestal's commander ordered Joe George to cut the lines from the Vestal to the burning Arizona. The Vestal herself was also on fire. As Joe George was about to cut the lines connecting his ship from the Arizona, he heard cries of help coming from the battleship Arizona. There were still six sailors alive on the burning battleship near Arizona's sky control platform. The last six men still living on Arizona. Some were burned badly, but they were still alive. Joe George had to decide to follow orders from his commander to cut the lines or saved the lives of six sailors directly in his eyesight. Flames were everywhere, and bodies too. It was utter devastation and chaos on that Sunday morning at Pearl Harbor. Now, Joe George was one of the Navy's top heavyweight boxers. He won all his fights and also was a brawler in the bars in Honolulu. Joe was often in trouble and landed in the brig on the USS Vestal just prior to the Japanese attack. Joe George did what heroes do. He sized up the situation and then disobeyed his commander's orders to cut the lines. Instead, he threw a rope attached with what's called a monkey's fist or a small ball made of rope from Vestal to the burning Arizona. 
and watched as the final six sailors made their way hand over hand from Arizona to the Vestal. Joe George then moved away quickly to help with other important issues on the burning Vestal. He never knew if the six sailors were able to cross over on that line over the burning waters of Pearl Harbor to reach his repair ship. They did, but it would be decades before Joe George knew that. Following the attack 82 years ago today, the Vestal's commander noted Joe George's heroics in his logbook. However, Cassin Young was killed during the naval battle for Guadalcanal and all was lost to history. Joe George died in 1996, but he was never forgotten by those sailors who survived and the ones that he rescued. Donald Stratton was one of the six Arizona crewmen who survived. He always wondered who that sailor on the Vestal was who rescued him and the five others. He and the others felt Joe George deserved a medal. Donald Stratton's son, Randy, led that effort. According to Donald Stratton, Joe George was never awarded anything for his bravery and going against a direct order from his captain. He deserved something at the very least. Joe had chosen humanity over a military order. It took decades, but thanks to the efforts of the families of those he saved and the U.S. Navy, Joe George's daughter, Joanne, was finally awarded her father's medal on the USS Arizona Memorial on December 7, 2017. It was a bronze star with a V for valor. Joe George was no longer the forgotten hero of Pearl Harbor. From Pearl Harbor, I'm Tim Gray, president and founder of the World War II Foundation. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.